Welcome to the Medical Affairs Professional Society. I'm Dr. John Prasik. I lead the focus area working group for the med tech section. Today we're going to be having a very interesting podcast discussing the ins and outs of the new European medical device regulation. I will be joined by Dylan Salyu from Philips, Philip Desjardins from Depew Synthes, and myself also from Depew Synthes. Please stay tuned for a two-part podcast coming up on European medical device regulation from the MedTech Focus Group of the Medical Affairs Professional Society. See you soon. Welcome to the Medical Affairs Professional Society's MedTech Focus Area Working Group podcast series on the European medical device regulations. The views expressed in this recording are those of the individual and do not necessarily reflect on the opinions of the companies in which they are affiliated. In this section, we will discuss the basics. So let's go ahead and get started. Podcast objectives for today are as follows. EUMDR has in many ways shifted the operating model for the medical device industry. Clinical evidence is now an expectation and not a nice to have. The choice not to fund clinical evidence is no longer an option. In many ways, it mirrors the changes pharma experience in regulatory and commercial scrutiny in the decades past. What seems like a heavy regulatory burden, which it certainly is, this is also the perfect opportunity to reshape the clinical organizations within medtech, where clinical and medical affairs represents the potential for driving differentiation and competitive advantage. This podcast will discuss the basics of EUMDR, what this means more globally, like the FDA, CFDA, and finally, how we can view this as the golden opportunity to elevate the science of our products and communicate a compelling medical value proposition. So we're going to move ahead uh, for the panelist introduction, and I'm going to uh, basically start this off. My name is Dylan Salyu. I am currently the head of medical affairs, clinical development, and health economic outcomes research at Philips within the Connected Care Cluster, uh, which compromises multiple business groups within the cluster. And this is Philip Desjardins. I'm the Vice President of Global Regulatory Affairs for the Depew Synthes Spine Organization and the Vice President for the Medical Device Regulatory Policy for Johnson & Johnson Medical Devices. And this is John Prasik. I lead preclinical clinical, and medical affairs for Depuce Synthes Spine of Johnson & Johnson Medical Devices Company. Dylan, back to you. Thank you, John. Phil, uh, we're going to start this off with the EUMDR overview. Tell us how did EUMDR start and when did it become a mandate and why did it become a mandate? Yeah, I think that's a, a really great, great question, Dylan. Um, EUMDR has been on the radar of European regulators for quite some time. Um, I've been with Johnson & Johnson for a little over five years, and um, when I started, we were already sort of five years into the discussion process around EUMDR. It's hard to trace back exactly what was the, the, the sort of uh, uh, turning point of when this was likely to become a reality, but a lot of people believe there were a handful of medical device crises in Europe, some product failures, some patient harms that were identified, it really shone a light on the European regulation of medical devices. There was a widespread, I would argue a misconception, but it was out there nonetheless, that the regulatory standards in Europe were lesser or more lax than they were in other parts of the world, particularly in the United States. 
So with that misconception out there, I think the politicians saw it as an opportunity to do two things. Number one, uh, to increase uh, their the safety of the populations that they had responsibility for, and also to show that they were sort of um, working for the public health, but trying to make medical products more safe and safer moving forward. So that all started probably, say, around the 2010 timeline. All this was in discussion through the trade associations, through the political process, through patient advocacy groups, for over, I'd say, about seven or eight years before it finally came into law. In 2017 was when the politicians were really able to come together and formulate the actual legislative text that makes up the European MDR as it exists today. And as many of us are already aware, and we'll talk a little bit more in detail moving forward, in 2017, the law went, went on the books, but it did apply sort of a three-year grace period. So as we'll talk about, in May 2020 um, was the actual date of application, which is sort of the formal date of when MDR should start going on moving forward for new products that were entering the market. It also identified an extended grace period or timeline for which legacy products could comply. So the, the, the far end of that timeline is uh, May of 2024, when all the existing CE BARC uh, MDD designations were likely to expire by that point. So two timelines we need to be aware of are May of 2020, at least as it exists today on the date of recording, and then 2024 when the CE um, certificates uh, will completely expire for the products, legacy products that are already on the market. So I, I think that's in a nutshell sort of where the, the the new regulation sort of came from, and as anything sort of political, you get a lot of politicians um, thinking about what's going to be the best interest of patients, what's going to be in the best interest of continuing to move uh, healthcare forward, and that's how we ended up with the requirements that are in place today. I think one other way to think about this, um, Joan, and maybe you could provide us some context, yeah. is um, what are the requirements from a clinical perspective? What if these uh, clinical requirements are, are critical to products moving forward? Yeah, thank you uh, very much uh, for that. You know, clinical uh, is front and center uh, with EUMDR. Um, certainly, it's much more than, than clinical. There are multiple folks that, that are involved in ensuring um, EUMDR compliance, but clinical does, in fact, play a central role. For example, some very specific requirements from, a, from, from the clinical world are things like CEP. A CEP stands for Clinical Evaluation Plan. CER, which stands for Clinical Evaluation Report. And then the PMCF plan, which is Post-Market Clinical Follow-Up. CEP, CER, and PMCF are key because what they basically do is that they ensure that there is a complete review of evidence, requirements, clinical assessment uh, of all the different products and solutions. So really what, what the difference here is, is that you really have new and robust requirements from a clinical perspective that have to be well-documented, they have to be well-written, and they really have to be substantiated. So for example, in the clinical evaluation plan, you have to be very clear about what the clinical requirements are, and they can be everything from safety the substantiation of claims and the evidence that's required. And when it comes to PMCF plans in particular, um, not every device, for example, requires a PMCF plan. A lot of 2A, 2B, and certainly class three devices do. But that basically is the opportunity to ensure that we are monitoring in a very organized way in the market 
how this product is performing. Is it performing to the intention of the product? Is it, are there any safety concerns? Are there any user concerns? And basically, it really allows for a robust plan to substantiate on an ongoing basis the clinical evidence, the use case, and certainly ensure patient safety at the heart of it all. So Phil, going back a little bit to the timelines, I know you spoke a little bit about, about them, and you can imagine just from what I said in clinical, between CEP, CER, PMCF, that's a lot of heavy lifting, by the way, a lot of work, because in many ways, at least at the level of EUMDR requirement, it is very new, it's very different for companies. Phil, uh, from a regulatory perspective, what are the key timelines we should keep in mind, and what is required uh, by when? Yeah, that's a great question, uh, John. I think the first thing we need to keep in mind is we're recording this podcast on April 2nd of 2020, and things are, are really in flux right now. If we were having this conversation a week ago or, or two weeks ago, what I would have told you is that May 26th of 2020 is the date we really need to be paying attention to. That is the date of application for MDR, and that is the date by, what, by when many of the new provisions go into effect and any new products entering the market need to be MDR compliant. With that said, with uh, the COVID-19 uh, pandemic that's uh, sweeping uh, the entire world right now, we have seen some proposals from the European Union Commission to extend that deadline out an additional year, pushing it out to May of 2021. Whether or not that process uh, gets executed and there is an extension, we don't know at this point. I don't have a crystal ball. But if it does, it'll buy us one additional year before the beginning of the MDR uh, application. But even if the date of application does get pushed back by an additional year, there is a, a tail end of MDR when all products, including legacy products, need to comply with the new requirements. And that is the year of 2024, four years from where we stand today. And what that really means is that all products over the course of the next four years, not only new products that are entering the market, but all products will need to come up to those new regulatory requirements. Um, and again, it is not a hard cutoff of 2024. It's really a rolling transition. But whenever your CE mark, whenever that certificate is currently set to expire. So for some products, for example, they might have been CE marked two years ago and they only have two years left on their certificate. So in that particular instance, the transition to full MDR compliance would probably be somewhere around 2022. So we've really got to think about it. it's a sliding scale depending on when your products were first marketed. So that's sort of a summary of when the requirements come into effect, um, and they really vary depending on the classification of the device, uh, the type of device that we're talking about, and its current legal status in the European Union. No, thank you very much, Phil. I do appreciate it. Let's pivot a little bit. Uh, Dylan, what have been some of the fundamental challenges in meeting these new requirements? Maybe perhaps dimensionalize it. Are they culture? Are they people? Are they structural? Dylan, your thoughts? Yeah. Well, thank you very much, John. Uh, in fact, um, there are some significant challenges here with EUMDR on the medical clinical side. So let's take culture, for example. A lot of uh, companies, specifically medtech, uh, have not traditionally had a culture of investment or heavy investment in pre-launch clinical evidence. Uh, what I mean by that is, Prior to this, uh, EUMDR, and I would even say just as recent as a decade ago, there was very little evidence really required to get a medical device out into the market. So with that, you can imagine in some cases, for over 100 years, a company's uh, mindset or mental model is set by how they operated. With this fundamental shift, 
investment in evidence becomes really uh, center. So from a cultural perspective, we have to really help educate the organization so that they can understand, yes, the requirements around why uh, clinical evidence is important before launching a product, not only from an EOMDR perspective, but even broader than that. In terms of people, uh, that's another uh, area of potential challenge because traditionally, uh, when you think about capabilities within MedTech, a lot of heavy engineering, and a lot of times, a lot of our engineering colleagues have also assumed some of that clinical work, uh, again, because the requirements were quite different. In today's world, with EUMDR, we're getting much closer to that pharma model, that evidence requirement, before we launch products. And therefore, from a people perspective, in a capability perspective, rather, we really need folks with clinical backgrounds. We need folks that have experience in designing various clinical studies, as an example, folks that understand economic evidence, clinical evidence, and certainly the regulatory framework as well. And then that leads us to the final one that you asked, which is structural, right, in an org design. Traditionally, a lot of this either reported a lot of these capabilities uh, either reported to R&D or oftentimes in commercial as well in marketing. And as we all probably know, if we take the United States as an example, the Department of Justice now makes it very clear about the expectations of reporting structure. So for instance, medical having a separate line, ensuring that evidence planning, that economic evidence, clinical evidence, and medical safety as examples have a straight and direct line into medical affairs and in fact medical affairs as a function, um, reports into directly into the CEO and not through a commercial or business partner. The reason why these are important um, things to consider uh, and items to consider rather is that we really have to, in many ways, fundamentally reshift not only the structural design, but really help educate and start to change the culture. And that's a culture of investment in evidence and high science and really commitment to excellence before we launch a product. And in fact, having those proof points before the product hits the market and certainly is used by our patients. Well, thank you very much. I clearly get the perspective here that these are two very, very different worlds. In other words, before MDR and now afterwards. Uh, in follow-up, what is the key pivot here to getting to this new world? Yeah, I think the key pivot is going to be uh, a commitment by the organizations to understand that EUMDR, in fact, is an opportunity. It's an opportunity to really do uh, clinical medical affairs correctly for the benefit of patients, first and foremost, uh, to meet the regulatory requirements for EUMDR. And certainly, I see EUMDR itself as a pivot. It's the pivot that if we do this correctly and we structure this correctly, we can actually differentiate our product. We can bring high science to communicate the value of our product to the market and to the providers, health systems, payers. Um, and certainly, you're able to hit on what I call the three lenses, regulatory differentiation, clinical differentiation, and economic differentiation. So in many ways, uh, I do see EUMDR as being that key pivot to elevating the medical aspect of MedTech. Well, thank you very much, Dylan. Uh, I'm, I'm going to go back to Phil because this new world order that we're now seeing with EUMDR, if I heard you correctly, and I think I did, these are not renewals. 
These are actually new certifications for the devices over the transition period. How deep is this complete yeah. rewrite going to be, Phil? Yeah, John, I think that, that's a great question. And oftentimes when I'm sitting down with teams, whether it's uh, to launch a new product or just for a product that's already on the market, and we're talking about what does MDR mean in this context, that's exactly how I start the conversation. It's saying, listen, you may have understood the way that we used to regulate medical products in Europe, but the whole landscape has changed, and there has been a rewrite to the regulatory requirements and the clinical expectations of what products need to both enter the market and to stay on the market. So I would say that rewrite does cut pretty deep. How it's going to impact a particular product is going to depend a lot um, on the classification of the device, uh, the intended use of the device, but I think we really need to reset the landscape when we're talking about product launches um, and maintaining products with the appropriate level of clinical evidence. I love the way that Dylan framed it in terms of uh, the intersection of sort of regulatory evidence, uh, clinical evidence, economic evidence, because those are really the three lenses that I think the regulators are looking at when they're looking at these products. And while some of them are going to be more critical for a notified body review, for example, I think it's also relevant to how our products play in the marketplace themselves. I think particularly when we start thinking about what is the economic benefit of these products? What is the, uh, how, how is that justified? These are things that as industry I think we've been thinking about for quite some time. And as to see them sort of pulled in, how are, they, how are these products performing in the real world as part of the regulatory process to keep them on the market is really one of the big fundamental changes between the way things used to be and the way things will be moving forward under MDR. No, thanks so much, Phil. Uh, as we draw to a close this first podcast, the last question I'm going to have is for Dylan. And what are your honest thoughts on what's going to be new and game changer with the EU MDR? Yeah, thanks, John. That's a great question. Um, and though I can speak, uh, and we have been speaking uh, about a lot of game changers between Phil and I uh, from our perspectives, I would like to focus here on one uh, food for thought. And that is in terms of claims. So certainly I'd focus in on all product classes, but now think of, of uh, class two, class three. In the past, the commercial organization was able to have what we would call design to claims or aspirational claims. And a lot of times the regulations were not very clear in terms of how you substantiate those claims. With EUMDR, that is a game changer. And I'll just focus in on that. I can tell you, um, and not specific to my current company, but I'm speaking across the industry now, the amount of rewrite that needs to happen when you actually do a CER, for example, you end up finding that you have significant gaps, that you end up with a situation, and some companies have ended up in a situation where perhaps if you pick a particular solution, more than 30 to 50% of the claims are not substantiated by evidence. And that is a game changer because A, you risk not being compliant and potentially having to remove your product from the market. But if it's done correctly, it goes back to what I said earlier. The game changer is the opportunity to do that right, to make sure that every claim that is going to be made on a particular product or solution is substantiated by valid evidence, substantial evidence, not only before launch, but at launch and after launch this is a continuous iteration, continuous improvement and loop back mechanism. Why do I say that? The game changer is that a lot of folks right now um, across the industry may have hired writers, example, to do CERs, to do CEPs. 
My personal opinion is that if you hire a contract company, it's one thing if you need an urgent need and you don't have the headcount, you don't have the resources. But I would challenge for a redesign here, going back to our structural setup. Why am I saying this? CERs, CEPs, and PMCF plans are not a one-time deal. It is continuous. The expectation is that we're continuously evaluating evidence. Through our post-market surveillance, we're paying attention. We're taking those uh, feedback loops back in, and we're reevaluating and resubstantiating. So, in fact, this is a continuous area of excellence expectation, and it goes back to those three lenses that we've been talking about. So the game changer, that's why I focused on the claims, is that this is going to have significant impact for companies who really do not take the investment in evidence seriously. Thanks very much, uh, Dylan. Well, thank you, gentlemen, uh, both Phil and Dylan, for your participation in this podcast. We hope the listeners gained valuable insights into the new European device uh, regulation. And this now concludes Section 1 of the podcast. This is John Tracy. Thank you.